we got a Bible study. So if you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. As we moved into chapter 24 last week, we were looking at what is called the Olivet Discourse. If you're visiting with us, we go through the books of the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we see that this discourse, this teaching of Jesus is also recorded in Luke chapter 21 and Mark chapter 13. And as we were studying through chapter 23 of Matthew, if you were with us, Jesus for the second time is weeping over Jerusalem. And then as we opened up the chapter, as we saw last week, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Father, I do pray that as we look at this text before us this morning, uh, Lord, to remember to turn ringers off our phones. Lord, we want to be settled in our seats. We want to, Lord, be attentive to the things that are told to us in this teaching that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago. We find ourselves on the Mount of Olives this morning. And Lord, listening into the words that were given to his disciples concerning the signs of the end, the signs of, of your coming, Lord. And I pray that we would take these things and be encouraged and blessed in every way. And Lord, that we would be ones that, uh, Lord, teachable. And it may cause a stirring in our hearts to where we rejoice, that we're not troubled. Lord, that we're not... Lord, scared or overwhelmed, these things that we talk about are not easy to talk about, but to remember that there's a glorious plan that's going to unfold before us. So, Lord, we give you this time in the teaching of your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, remember the events of the last week of Jesus. He came into Jerusalem at Passover, and he made his triumphal entry, and, and then he went into the temple the next day, and he overturned the money changers' tables and drove out those who sold this for the sacrifices. And he rebuked the religious leaders by saying that my father's house, which is a house of prayer, is a den of, you've made it into a den of thieves. And he would then, as we saw, he cursed the fig tree, which had leaves but no fruit. It was symbolic of the nation of the leaders that had a lot of religious rituals and traditions, but there was no real fruit unto God. He told of the parable, the wicked vine dressers, again, an indictment against the leaders. And then in chapter 23, Jesus, as we saw, he gave those eight woes uh, concerning the, uh, to the scribes and Pharisees and, and just uh, using that word, not only woe eight times, but hypocrite eight times as he addressed their spiritual hypocrisy. And then he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, how I long to gather you to myself, but you are not willing to come. And now your house is left to you desolate. And so keep that all in mind as it's been a long couple days as Jesus has now withdrawn from the crowds and the religious leaders with them challenging him. It is the end of the day. Jesus and his disciples, they're walking across the temple proper. And Mark records that one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see all the manner of stones and what buildings are here. 
It was an amazing place, the second temple. It was one of the wonders of the world. And we talked about how the temple was, it was a grand building with large stones overlaid with gold. And I just kind of picture Jesus as he stops there on, on the temple mount. And he's pointing with his finger and he says, listen, guys, that not one stone is going to be left upon another. It's all going to be cast down. And he would leave the Temple Mount. He would cross the valley called Kidron and go up to that mount to the east called Olivet. And there you could see the temple. It's a magnificent view. And here Jesus, as the disciples are hearing him say, that your house is left to you desolate. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. The disciples then come to Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And Mark records that it was specifically Peter and Andrew and James and John. And they asked him that, tell us, when will these things be? That is the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So they're equating the destruction of the temple, that magnificent building, with the end of the world. With you coming back, Lord, and and restoring the nation of Israel. And if I was to say to you on September 10th, 2001, 20 years ago, if I was to say that these twin towers in New York, they, they were magnificent buildings... By noon tomorrow, they're going to be completely destroyed. There's going to be nothing but rubble, and they're going to be burning. You would have thought, wow, there's going to be a nuclear exchange. Maybe it's the end of the world that's coming. And they're thinking the end of this age and the return of Christ is going to happen when the temple is destroyed. Now, as we look back, there's been a 2,000-year gap And as they're asking, what are the signs? What are the signs of the end of the age and and of your coming? We know that Jesus, as he answers them now, he is going to liken the signs of his coming to sorrows or birth pangs. Uh, A woman in labor to where uh, a child is birthed. Now, we know that when a woman goes into labor, Uh, The contractions become more frequent. Uh, They become more intense until that child comes forth. And these signs, listen, are like birth pangs. Paul uses that term as well in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll I'll read it to you. But he says in that text, as he's writing to them, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, let me stop there. When you see that term, the day of the Lord, it's a period of time. It begins with the tribulation period, extends seven years to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and also includes the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. It is a term that is used in the Old Testament as you read about the day of the Lord and in the New Testament. So it's not a specific day. It is a period of time, the tribulation followed by the millennium reign. It is judgment that's going to be followed by blessing. And he says that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So we see that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, that he is using that term, uh, the birth pangs. And before we read these signs here in Matthew, there may be some that are here this morning. You're thinking, okay, here we go again. Signs of the end. I've heard this before. 
Pastor, you've been talking about this for many years, ever since we've been going through the scriptures. Or you might be thinking, I never heard any of this. In the two previous chapters, there were people that were going, whoa, I didn't know any of this. I, I you know, had read this, but I wasn't really thinking about it. And the question is asked, is this important? Is it important for us to study end-time prophecy? Well, it is because it's in the Bible, first of all. And we know that much of the Bible deals with end-time prophecy. And it is important for us also for our spiritual encouragement and edification. You see, Paul, when he was writing to the church at Thessalonica, as I just read to you, concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need for me to write to you. Those are two distinct words that have different meanings. Times is long, indiscriminate periods of time. Seasons are things that happen that mark those periods uh, of time off. So if any of us think that end time prophecy, what does that have to do with spiritual growth? And sometimes people will challenge me. They'll challenge us. End time prophecy, it really doesn't help with spiritual growth. It's not important for new believers and all of this. Well, here's what we need to consider. Paul, in his second missionary journey, he would go to Philippi. He established the church at Philippi. You should read those chapters on the second missionary journey, Acts chapters 16, 17, and 18. Philippi, he established the, the church at Philippi. He was beaten by rods, him and Silas. And it's the first church that was established on the continent of Europe. He would then travel southward. He would go to Thessalonica. And it gives hint to us, some scholars believe, that he was there for 21 to 30 days as he's driven out after three Sabbaths. Two of the earliest epistles that we have in the New Testament are First and Second Thessalonians. And Paul would write that as he went from Thessalonica to Berea to Athens to Corinth. While he's in Corinth, he's concerned for the Christians in Thessalonica. And he writes a letter to them. And in chapter 5 of that first letter, concerning the times and seasons, you have no need for me to write. He knows that they were well informed. And in 1 Thessalonians, in all five chapters, it's not a long epistle, in all five chapters, it ends with a reference to the return of the Lord. In chapter 4, he specifically writes about the rapture of the church. In chapter 5 that I just read to you about the day of the Lord. And he would say concerning those things, comfort one another with these words. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, about a year later, he's in Corinth for at least a year and a half. We know that from the book of Acts. A year later, after he writes his first letter to Thessalonica, uh, that church, he writes a second letter. And they were troubled. They were troubled in their hearts. He said, you don't need to be troubled in your hearts, though, concerning our gathering unto the Lord. And so they thought they had missed the rapture of the church. We have looked at that quite specifically, going through that epistle and also in our prophecy update. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in one chapter, unique in all of Scripture, he talks about the rapture. He talks about the day of the Lord. He talks about the Antichrist, the rebuilt temple, the apostasy, or the falling away, deception, false signs and wonders, lawlessness. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, that I told you these things? And all of this, listen, to a young church, to a very young church. 
And Paul thought it was important for them to know the things concerning the blessed hope of the church about the day of the Lord, the return of the Lord. And in this age that we are living in presently, it is headed somewhere, and there are signs relative to the time in which we are living in. And we should be all wise and be watching and discerning of the period of time that we're in because we have entered into a new season that tells us something of the time that we're in. You say, what is that? People ask, why do you believe that we're in the last days? Why do you think that the coming of the Lord is nigh? We don't know the day or the hour of the Lord coming for us, the return of the Lord, the blessed hope. We don't know the day or the hour, but we can see the, the things that are happening all around this that point to the soon return of Jesus Christ. There are two specific things that tell us that we're in the last days. Two specific things that separate us from all other generations of the church since these prophecies have been given. Number one, this is important, the rebirth of Israel. Scholars call it the super sign. The prophecies of the return of Christ supposes the nation of Israel on the scene. The Jews back in their original homeland, rebuilding the ancient cities in, in the mountains of Israel. We saw that recently in our Ezekiel study going through chapter 36 and, and 37. A nation that was dead, coming alive and back in the land. Uh, many, many verses and many even there's chapters, whole chapters that speak of the return of Israel and the restoration of Israel. They came back in 1948, an absolute miracle, just as prophesied in the Old Testament and even Jesus as he spoke about it in the Olivet Discourse in Luke's narrative. The time in which we are in is unique to where it is the first time, listen, in nearly 2,000 years, the church in Israel is on the scene at the same time. And many of the prophecies surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ cannot happen unless Israel is a nation once again. And we're going to see and we're going to talk about how nation uh, Israel is thrust to the forefront and a focus once again in the day of the Lord, in the tribulation period. And God has a plan for them. There will be a spiritual restoration of the nation that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11. I want us to be clear on that. Because there are those who will say, well, the church is Israel. Or there are those who will say the church has replaced Israel, replacement theology, and that has even grown in some circles of evangelical Christianity. We know that the Bible, as you just read it, makes it very clear that Israel will be back in a physical restoration of Israel back in the land in 1948. Do you realize that no group of people ever went three or four generations out of the homeland you know, that they begin to lose their identity and, and ceased as, as you, you don't have Babylonians. You don't have Assyrians and, and all of that. But Israel, out of their homeland for 2,000 years, come back into the original homeland, just as the prophets of old said. They come back into the land and their nation once again. And many of the prophecies surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ cannot happen unless Israel's back in the land. That's why they call it a super sign. The Antichrist making a covenant with Israel. Uh, the temple being rebuilt. The abomination of desolation that we're going to talk about. All these things, Israel has to be back in the land. And that has happened. The second thing that makes the time which we are in very unique 
is weapons of mass destruction. Nuclear proliferation. Because Jesus said, if he had not come back, if the Father had not shortened those days, man would have destroyed himself. We are able to destroy the whole world. They say that the United States has five times the nuclear arsenal. What does that mean? It means that we can blow up the world five times, as though one time isn't enough. That Russia has four times, you know, China has four times. And as we look at this, we, we think that there are those weapons of mass destruction, and we know that at the end of the tribulation period, that if those days were not cut short, that man would have destroyed himself. Very sobering to think about that. In the Manhattan Project in, in World War II, when they were, we were racing to make the nuclear bomb, when they tested it in New Mexico, scientists didn't know if the reaction would continue. If they set it off, if the reaction would continue, and we'd destroy the whole world. But they did test it, and it worked. And when we dropped the bomb on Japan, scientists said that we have entered into the age of Armageddon. As we look at this text here, we cover the signs. There have always been counterfeit Christ. There have always been earthquakes. There have always been famines, rumors of war, and so forth. But these are birth pangs to where they will culminate in that time called the tribulation period. Matter of fact, we're going to see that these signs correlate very closely to the sealed judgments being opened up in Revelation chapter 6. So as we continue, we read about these signs, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear wars and rumors of war. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Throughout this chapter, Jesus says, Take heed. He says, Behold, watch, be ready. Those are inserted and are given to us so that we can be aware and sober, so we can be vigilant and we can be wise and discerning of the days in which we are in. And I think most of you, if not all of you, you want to be wise and discerning, don't you? Of the days in which we are in. It's not just so we can have an academic exercise or get our prophetic charts out and and debate in, in all of this. This subject, end time prophecy, the return of the Lord, has suffered uh, on two ends. The one is, end is neglect. I've already mentioned that. That there are many churches and pastors that won't talk about it. And the reason is, as we go through these things, this is kind of heavy. And first and second service, I got response from people saying, I didn't know, and man, I didn't understand all these things, and this is heavy, and it can be a little bit overwhelming, and so we don't want to burden the people. And, you know, it, it, it really doesn't matter, and it doesn't help with spiritual growth, or we can't know is what they say, so they won't talk about it, and so they ignore the subject. And as I said, that much of the Bible deals with end-time prophecy, and it is given to us. We are allowed to listen in on this private teaching of Jesus so that we can be benefited, so that we can be comforted, 
so that we can be wise and discerning and we can minister to others because we are here for such a time as this to be able to talk to them about the things that are unfolding before us. Don't you want to minister to them? To give them hope? To give them truth? I know that I do. So there's been neglect, but the other end has been sensationalism. That there have been those who come along and say, this is going to be fulfilled, and they set dates. And we've heard that over the years, haven't we? Those who set dates, and Jesus is going to come back on this date, and they put up big billboards, and then the media gets a hold of it. And, you know, everybody's kind of chuckling about it. And the world looks at us who believe in the return of the Lord, that the return of the Lord is near. We don't know the day or the hour, but they look at us and say, you guys are a bunch of kooks. You know, you're weird. Because of people that follow those kinds of things. I remember a few years ago that there was all over, you know, you know, social media and people were calling me, hey, Revelation chapter 12 is going to be fulfilled. And there's the alignment of, you know, the moon, stars and constellations. And, and people really got into that. And it's like we're not in the tribulation period. Keep everything in context. There are those who will quote from Joel chapter 2 or Revelation chapter 6 and, you know, that the sun is dark and the moon turns to blood. And, and that's the day of the Lord. Keep everything in context. We should be discerning of the times and seasons that we are in. We don't know the day or the hour of the return of the Lord. And if anybody sets up dates, you know, that the Lord's going to come back on this day, they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. They're out of the parameter of Scripture. And we see the warning given to us. The very first thing that Jesus says concerning the signs of the end of his coming is take heed. In other words, this is very important. Don't get deceived. For many, he didn't say a few, but many will come in my name, saying I am the Christ. We know that throughout church age, there have been those who have come along claiming to be Messiah. There have been many counterfeits and false prophets and teachers. He's going to reiterate that as he continues through this discourse. And today it is no different. There has been all kinds of spiritual deception. People claiming to be Christ or know when he is, you know, coming back and false teachers and Christ and prophets. Paul would write to Timothy at the end of his life, at Timothy, that the last days will be very fierce times, grievous times, perilous times. There are going to be those that have a form of godliness but denying his powers. There's going to be counterfeits that are going to be on the scene. Evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse. And Timothy, you must continue in the scripture because if you don't, you're going to be deceived. The things that the church or Christians can get involved in is absolutely amazing and it very much concerns me. What we see today is a lot of Christians will put feelings over the Word of God. Well, that feels very good. That just pleases the flesh. I want to hear how I can be prosperous, how I can be wealthy. I want to hear how I don't have to repent of my sins and turn to the cross, that I can live any way that I want to. That, that, that it doesn't matter. Just believe whatever it is that you want to believe. And we're all God's children. And, and there is that that is growing in, I call the church at large, that false doctrine and teaching that a lot of people are, are flocking to because it sounds so good. It pleases the flesh. So feelings over the word of God or experience over the word of God. 
People looking for miracles, chasing after signs and wonders. And listen, I believe God still works miracles today. I believe that he heals today. But there are those who will develop doctrine, like the New Apostolic Reformation, that the apostles and prophets are going to grow in power, and they're over the pastors and teachers, and they're going to take over the the civil authorities and the political, you know, uh, agendas and take over nations. And they're going to go into hospitals and heal mass healings. And we're going to usher in the second coming. There's nothing in the scripture that says that's going to happen. And yet people flock to it. It's a new apostolic movement. There's nothing new about it. So they get into experience. Chasing signs. They get into what is called grave soaking. Lay on top of a grave of a famous, you know, you know, church leader of the past and soak in the anointing and, or dance healing, you know, and barking in the spirit and being drunk in the spirit. All these things that people get involved in, they experience over the word of God. You've heard me say, if it's not in scripture, set it aside. It concerns me because I think there's going to be more and more, and the Bible indicates that. That as we get closer, there will be more deception to where Paul writes that the Spirit, 1 Timothy chapter 4, expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Test the spirits to see if they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out in the world. We test it through the Word of God. And the Word of God is our final authority. So there's going to be many that are going to be deceived. Jesus is going to talk about those who come with, with signs and wonders that people are going to be chasing after. Paul, in his second letter to the church at Thessalonica, in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Just a quick explanation of that. I believe what is being said here is that, that we are a restraining factor, the church. That the lawless one, the Antichrist, cannot come on the scene until we are taken out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. Revelation chapter 3, the promise to the church of Philadelphia. This is a restraining time. The church has such an important restraining factor, your prayers, us being light. And when the Holy Spirit that indwells the church is taken away, then it says the lawless one will be revealed. Then the Antichrist will come on the scene and lawlessness will begin to take over whom the Lord will consume with his breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one, it is a name for Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Definite article, the lie, I think in context is speaking of when Antichrist goes into, in the beginning of the chapter, into the temple of God, to be proclaiming himself as God, to be worshipped as God. That he will say, I am God, and he's going to work through signs and wonders. In Revelation chapter 6, the first seal that is opened up, the Antichrist coming on the scene. 
And as he comes, a rider on a white horse, he has a bow, but not an arrow. He comes as a peacemaker, seemingly, but then he will lead the world into destruction. This unrighteous deception and delusion will go forth, and there'll be a worldwide false church that is on the scene as well in the tribulation in the first half. The woman riding the beast, Revelation chapter 17, then he will turn and destroy that false world church that's on the scene because he alone wants to be worshipped. That's something that Satan always wanted. And here is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that he is according to the working of Satan. He's going to turn and say, I'm going to be worshipped alone. I am God. Antichrist means not only against Christ, but instead of Christ. There's going to be false Christ. These things must come to pass, but the end has not come immediately. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We know that in Revelation chapter 6, the second seal, the second horseman, the red horse, and it was granted to the one who sat on to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. Jesus talks about worldwide states of war. The last century we saw World War I and World War II. Oceans were crossed. In World War II, the war to end all wars, 32 million killed on the battlefield. 25 million killed in concentration camps. That includes 6 million Jews. 29 million wounded. <clears throat> Over 20 million civilians killed in that war. 82 million people estimated killed in World War II. That's hard to comprehend, isn't it? It's hard to comprehend that in the tribulation period, after the first four seals are opened up, that one in four people are going to die a quarter of the earth. That's two billion people. That is all of South America, all of Central America, all of the United States, all of Canada and Western Europe, gone. In the first four seals of the tribulation period. Today in our world, one Trident submarine 24 tubes, each missile 15 independently targeted warheads. One sub can threaten 360 cities or targets. That's one submarine. Each weapon 10 megatons. Now, one megaton is 50 times Hiroshima, the bomb that was dropped on Japan, the first atomic bomb. 10 megatons is 500 times Hiroshima. One Trident sub has 40 times the destructive power than all the munition used in World War II. And that's all the armies combined. That's the world in which we live in. You have North Korea that has increased their nuclear capabilities. You have Iran that wants to have nuclear weapons. And listen, I read an article that the defense minister out of Israel, saying that Iran is enriching enough uranium now, even though there's been all this discussion and, and, and treaties and all of this, that they're just thumbing their nose at the world, and they continue to enrich uranium to where they can have a bomb in two months. I read that article six weeks ago. You're talking about a nation that has driven their foreign policy by the Ayatollahs and the Mullahs that believe that they will usher in the 12th Iman and that they will use weapons of mass destruction to do that, to destroy the great Satan, the United States, and the little Satan, Israel. 
That's why they're pursuing those weapons. We just went over Ezekiel 38 and 39 in our study of Ezekiel. That confederation of nations that includes Russia and Iran and Turkey and other nations with a massive, massive invasion of Israel. We see that God will turn and destroy those armies. We know that Ezekiel 39 is the only chapter in all of Scripture that talks about the cleanup of that battle. And it gives hints to us of weapons of mass destruction being used. They will not be able to go in and touch the bones, the bodies, for seven months. They have to put flags, those who are employed. Interesting description that Ezekiel gives to us. I remember that years ago when I was teaching on this, a guy in the military came up and he said, that's exactly what I'm trained to do. After a chemical or nuclear you know, exchange that we go in, and we go in covered, and we put flags by the bones, by the bodies, because they're poisoned with radiation or with chemical you know, substance or whatever. 2,500 years ago, Ezekiel describes that those weapons that did not detonate, that they are going to take seven years, Israel, to burn those weapons. When they cleaned up Rocky Flats, got a good friend that's a nuclear engineer that was a part of that project. When they destroyed the weapons at, at Rocky Flats, you know how they destroyed them? They burned them. It took seven years. Ezekiel, 2,500 years, is speaking of those things. Zechariah chapter 14. In the battle of Armageddon, when Jerusalem is being surrounded, the description is given that their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Sounds like weapons of mass destruction, such as a nuclear blast. America, for hundreds of years, in the beginning of our nation, we were, for the most part, isolated by the oceans and other continents. Then came Pearl Harbor. Then came the 9-11 attacks on our own soil. Now the technology of intercontinental missiles with nuclear warheads, which North Korea claims to have and Iran wants, that's the world in which we live in. It's troubling. Famines. There's always been famines. It can be a huge problem as the population grows. Do you realize from the time of the flood in Genesis till 1850, it, it took that long for there to be one billion people on the planet. From 1850 to 1930, the population of the world was two billion. From 1930 to 1961, three billion. From 1961 to 1976, 4 billion. From 1976 to 1989, 5 billion. Today, there is around 8 billion people on the planet. It has doubled since the 70s. And my point is this. You put the perplexity of nations with distress that Luke talks about is one of the signs of the end and war into the picture. You have a potential for mass losses in famine. Revelation chapter 6 tells us the third seal, a quart of wheat for a Daenerys, that's a day's wage, three quarts of barley for a Daenerys, great scarcity. Pestilence. When I first read pestilence, I thought bugs, ooh. But we know COVID, we're still dealing with that. There was the black plague that that we read about. There is the Spanish flu in 1918 that is estimated killed 
50 million people worldwide. The book of Revelation mentions pestilence 11 times. And in Ezekiel 39, in the cleanup of, or Ezekiel 38, excuse me, when the Lord destroys that confederation of nations that come against Israel, he will use fire and brimstone and pestilence. I think, what is that all about? The fourth seal, the pale horse, the writer called Death in Hades, a quarter of the earth was dead from sword and hunger from beasts of the earth. He says there's going to be earthquakes. From the USGS in Boulder on their website, history of major killer earthquakes from decades in 1900 to 1909, there was one. In 1910 to 1919, three. In the 1920s, there was two. In the 1930s, there was five. In the 1940s, there was four. After the rebirth of Israel in the 1950s, nine. In the 1960s, 13. In the 1970s, 56. In the 1980s, 74. In the 1990s, up until about 2010, 125. In Sumatra, in the Indian Ocean, a 9.1 quake, tsunami that followed. It made the island of Sumatra, it moved it 100 miles to the southwest. About 300,000 people perished. We know that in 2010, that earthquake in Haiti, that 316,000 dead from that earthquake, and they had another one just a couple weeks ago that was in a more sparsely populated area. They still don't have a total number of the death you know, toll, but it's in the thousands. And we know that they're having a hard time because a tropical storm was on top of them trying to get any kind of relief. We just had the Olympics in Japan in 2001. You might remember some of you 20 years ago. That tsunami that happened, 18,400 dead. That's the world in which we live in. Jesus said they will happen in diverse places. The strongest earthquake in America was not in Southern California, but in Missouri in the 1860s. They estimated it was 8.5 on the Richter scale, made the Mississippi River run backwards, it rang the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, it cracked windows in New York, and they say that they are way overdue for another one. These things will increase in frequency and intensity like a woman in labor pain. These are signs that are telling us of something when the tribulation takes place, of course, when the seals are opened up, then we will see these things come to a final fulfillment leading to the birth of an eternal kingdom that will be ushered in. There will be earthquakes. Luke's account says that Jesus records, uh, as he told them, fearful sights and great signs from heaven will be taking place. Don't you find it interesting that all of a sudden there's this big reports and and interest in UFOs and things like that. We know that in the sixth seal that there will be cosmic disturbances. And then verse 9, back to our text here, and we're going to end here. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations and for my name's sake. The fifth seal... You hear the cries of the martyrs. John writes, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And we will discuss that next time. We're going to talk about persecution. Now you might be thinking, I think I'll stay home next week. (laughs) (laughs) What do I do with all this? 
What do I do with all of this? And I know that this is a kind of a heavy teaching a little bit and maybe hard to take in and maybe overwhelming in some ways. How do we respond to all of this? Do I quit school? Don't quit school. Do I quit my job? Don't quit your job. All right? Do I dig, you know, make a bunker, whatever it might be? You know, how is it that I respond to all this? And after second service, you know, everybody ran to the coffee shop, give me an espresso, you know, and make it a double. I don't know. <laughs> and it's just like, whoa, what, what, you know, what was that? And listen, these things are in the Word of God, again, for our benefit and so that we can be wise and discerning in days in which we are in. And I know that these are heavy things, but we need to know. That's why it's recorded in God's Word. And listen, Jesus said this, when you begin to see these things come to pass, look up and rejoice. That's our reaction. Because our redemption draws near. And I believe that we are getting closer to the return of the Lord. I don't know the day or the hour, but we know that we are in very unique times and we're seeing these things happening. And when you see all the things that are taking place, we're going to continue to talk about it, that's happening in our nation. Look what has happened just this month, just this month of August. The wildfires that are burning in California, they say they're going to burn till December. The smoke that's over us. Last year we had ash falling on us, right? And, and we know that it's not just the United States. I don't know if you know this. But it, also in Europe, they have a lot of fires going on there in Greece. They even had to evacuate some of Jerusalem this last week because of fires uh, on the you know, west side of Jerusalem. There's a forest there. They had to evacuate a bunch of people because of fire, you know, that wildfires that were taking place. Siberia has more fires going on. The acreage burning is more than all the other fires around the world that are combined. We just got a UN report that July was the hottest month recorded on record. What do you do with that? And there's no turning back. We're in the red zone. Our hearts broke as we've seen the things that are happening in Afghanistan. Matter of fact, a good friend in ministry is trying to get some missionaries out. And we're praying for him. We don't know where he's at. We see the images of babies being handed over the wall to the Marines, the parents desperate to get them out of the nation as the Taliban had taken over, this evil that has taken over. It breaks our hearts, doesn't it? Kingdoms that are falling, nations that are falling. We know that the COVID continues, and, and we look around us and the upheaval and all this. What is our reaction? Listen, when you begin to see these things come to pass, look up and rejoice. Because the Lord has a wonderful, glorious plan for us and to be able to be used of others. You are here for such a time as this. Don't bury yourself. Isolate yourself. God wants to use you to give the message of hope, and that is the gospel to others. Because we're still in the day of grace. But the trumpet is going to sound someday. And there's going to be scoffers that are on the scene. As Peter says, it's the worst the coming of the Lord since your forefathers' time. Everything continues as they are. No, they're not. What manner of men and women are we to be, as Peter would ask? We are to continue in holiness. We're to continue to pursue the Lord. 
and to be used of him in the days in which we are in. And that's what I pray, that as we leave this place, kind of sobering, come back next week. Don't stay at home safe. Because I think actually next week is going to be an encouragement. And to know this, that we have an eternal hope, don't we? And God has a plan for us that's a glorious plan. And so I pray that we would be ones that, Lord, I want to be used. Remember Daniel in the book of Daniel? In the fifth chapter, it's interesting between chapter 4 and 5, and I'm going to finish up here very quickly. About 20 years passed. Daniel wasn't really heard of, and Daniel had an amazing ministry to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Belshazzar was the last of the Babylonian kings before the Medes and the Persians came in. They were surrounding the city. And in chapter 5, there's Belshazzar having this party. Remember that? And the handwriting with the finger, God's handwriting on the wall. Meaning, meaning, tekel, you farces. And Daniel was brought out to interpret the handwriting on the wall. And as he interpreted that message, I want to say this that you and I have the opportunity to interpret the handwriting on the wall to people. We have good news. Daniel didn't give good news to Belshazzar. He said, listen, you've been weighed, found wanting. You're a lightweight Belshazzar, and your days are up, and you're going to get killed tonight. We have a message of this, that Jesus Christ wants to offer you life, and he's coming back, and this world is not your hope. But Jesus Christ, he is your hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. Listen, he wants to use us. Let's be light and let's, let's give truth to others and let's live for the Lord. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these words given to us that kind of maybe perhaps stir us a bit, shake us up a bit. But, Lord, there's something here for us that all these things are headed somewhere. And that is your return. And Lord, I pray that it would cause us, even as John would write, that when we see him, that we will be like him, and he who has this hope purifies himself. Then when we keep an eternal perspective that we're not going to be living carnally or just for ourselves, but Lord, living for you, because the one who loves us, who died for us, could come for us at any time. Tomorrow isn't promising any of us anyway. But, Lord, that we would be wise in discerning of the days in which we are in because we've been on this mount with Jesus listening to his words. That as we continue, that it would just strengthen us, not weaken us. That it would comfort us, not trouble us. And, Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here, if you're here and you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, he is your hope. He is the only hope. There is none other that you give your life to him. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And that you have sinned, just like all of us, and the wages of sin is death, but Jesus came and made atonement for your sins that you might have life. And the invitation is to come to repent, quit going the direction you're going, and turn to Jesus and give your heart to him and your life to him and call out to him. Today is the day of salvation. And praying sincerely that Jesus had come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. Forgive me that you're alive and that you are my salvation. 
be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for these words of truth, the gospel, for loving me and saving me in this new beginning, bringing me into the family of God. And I do, I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And I pray, Lord, for all of us that that would be our prayer, to stay close to you, Lord, to take heed, to be sober, to be vigilant, to be watching, to occupy till you come, Lord, to be light. So, Lord, I thank you for this morning. I pray you bless everyone here as we go our way. Lord, we do see the things we pray for those in Afghanistan. Oh, Lord, it breaks our hearts to see people being persecuted, Christians being hunted down. I pray that you would intervene. For those in Haiti, the earthquake, and Lord, that, that are out on the streets and Lord, I thank you for those who are helping in the Christian ministries that are there present. Those who have lost homes in their fires and in our own nation. There's a whole town's burnt up. Lord, that we as Christians would bring comfort beyond the scene to reach out people who are hurting and confused. So Lord, stir our hearts in these matters to be doing what you've called us to do, where you've placed us, and the gifts given to us. I thank you for this morning, the encouragement, the edification, and exhortation given to us through your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen.